0: We all have labels. I mean, I can tick off some pretty mainstream ones for me. I'm white, I'm male, I'm cis, I'm straight. And I can add some others that are a little less common. I'm an author, I'm a Rhodes Scholar, I'm child-free, I'm a person with a speech impediment. You know, some labels are given to us and some labels we give ourselves. But it's how you think about those labels and perhaps even more importantly, how you word them that can really make the difference. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read two pages from a favorite book, a book that's moved them, a book that shaped them. Now, Krista Couture is brilliant. And by her own admission, she is a woman with many labels.
1: (laughs) Um, I am a writer, musician, musician broadcaster currently based in Toronto, Canada. I am also queer, I'm indigenous, I'm mixed Cree and Scandinavian. Uh, I'm disabled and I'm a mom.
0: Oh, so that's interesting. Krista calls herself disabled. And I've been thinking that I should be calling people, you know, a person with a disability. I mean, have I got that wrong?
1: I say disabled person, um, which is identity first language. And it's important to me for a few reasons um one is that it's not a bad word <laughs> disabled is not a bad word I don't need it to be this kind of afterthought that's a bit hush hush or you know um it's also that it's such a uh, I mean I acquired my disability my left leg is amputated above the knee and uh, that surgery was when I was thirteen it was the the cure for the bone cancer I had at the time but that has been I mean I'll be forty three this year so thirty years in this disabled body and and it's such a integral part of who I am I can't separate it. Um, and these other parts of my identity, you know I'm not a person with Creeness. I'm not a person with motherhood. Um, I I am a mom, I am queer, I am Cree like they there I am a cis woman I don't have you know cisgenderness in my back pocket somewhere and so for me it's it's that's a part of it. I also don't think we should have to reiterate that a person is a person, <laughs> but I think that people with disabilities often do have to assert their humanity. And I think sometimes that's where person first language comes from. And I know that I have the privilege with my disability, where first of all, I can hide it. I can pass for non-disabled. I mean, if I put on pants and stand very still, um but, uh, some people, a lot of people can't. And there are people with more severe disabilities who are treated terribly and need to be reminding the world that they're a person. And so I have the privilege where I'm I'm not faced with that in a regular way. Um, but I also think the word disabled, like to be a disabled person, can help us identify what is disabling. You know, there's the idea of the the social versus medical model of disability, and in the social model... What's disabling are the attitudes around us are the structures and the systems around us. And so, you know, me here with one leg, I'm disabled by, you know, a restaurant with stairs um, by the TTC here in Toronto, where only like two of the stops have elevators and half the time they're not working or whatever. I'm disabled by those things. And so it can help put the onus of disability um, on the issues of equity versus me, the individual (laughs) who has this thing. And it's my problem that no one else has to deal with when actually, I feel like we should all as a society, uh, be making room and (laughs) accommodations for difference.
0: I think this is quite brilliant. And I hadn't thought of it like this before. A disabled person is disabled by how society fails them. Now, Krista has dealt with loss and more than just to her leg. One of the labels that she mentioned was being a mother. And there's a reason why her memoir is called How to Lose Everything.
1: I talk in my book about the decision to try and have my daughter, who is my third child. Um, my I have two sons that both died. My son Emmett died uh, during labor, effectively. I mean, officially the day after he was born. And my son Ford uh, who died when he was 14 months old. And and my book, it's called How to Lose Everything, and each chapter right. focuses on a different loss. But um, really, my sons are the, everything. You know, they are the biggest, the biggest, mm. most, you know, still present absence, <laughs> um, if we can call it that. And And so the decision to even try to have another child, you know, which is first, you know, conceiving, carrying to term, having a live birth, um, there's a lot of hurdles <laughs> before you right. have a baby, um, yeah. and and it was a a decision that I I sat with for many years. Yes, I want to try. No, I don't want to. Um, yes, I can be open to another loss. No, I absolutely can't. My life will feel empty without a child. No, there's all these other things that are fulfilling, and there was a lot of a lot of processing for a long time, yeah. and. Uh, You know, I I was waiting for a moment of clarity and then I was like, well, maybe it's just not going to come. I, I, you know, Um, and then I got a royalty check in the mail. What would that be? 2016, (laughs) right? (laughs) For, For a song of mine that had, unbeknownst to me, done really well on some satellite radio station. And the minute that I opened this envelope and got this check in U.S. dollars, which is a Canadian, is always exciting. Exactly.
0: So exciting. It's like, 25% immediately. Amazing.
1: In that moment, the first thing I thought of was like, I'm going to have a baby.
0: Ooh. And
1: I realized after I was like, oh, wow, was I Was I just waiting for it to feel like I could afford it? Like, is that what's holding? Because if that's it, then I don't, then yes, I'm going to have a baby. They'll figure the money thing out. Um, But there was something about that check arriving and it taking away a kind of immediate worry, especially because I was planning to try and be, I I was a single mother by choice. um, And so I was doing an IUI with, you know, donor sperm and there's expenses and all that stuff. And, and so the fact that it would, the financial piece was no longer a question. I had the answer. And it was really interesting that that was the reveal, that it was that, that, you know, I kind of feel bad that it's like the money that made the difference, but it's, it's such a real thing and it's a real worry. And, 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 but it helped me realize that even if that check hadn't arrived, it was like, oh, I do really want to try. I am ready to try to be, I'm ready to be hopeful. I'm ready to be open to whatever comes. Um, But that was, that's what, that was the kicker. That's what did it.
0: Krista, how have you learned to stay open to another loss? That is such a powerful phrase. And, I, you know, one of the things that must happen when you accumulate losses, particularly as profound as, you know, the, the death of your two first children, your two first sons, is to not be open to another last you like, it's just not, I'm just not going to throw the dice because if I don't th- throw the dice, I might not win, but I also definitely won't lose. Hmm. And I'm wondering through the process of writing the book, how to lose everything. Have you found ways of understanding how to stay open and and maybe courageous enough to have another go, even though you may lose again?
1: Right. <sighs> It's been a number of things. Some of them are the, are the same as getting into my body, you know, have a shower, listen to music, uh-huh. <laughs> like, calm yourself down. <laughs> right. Um, right. Because, because to be, you know, hopeful or to be open to another loss is to face fear. Mm. And so there are ways of, you know, grounding and, and talking myself through like, okay, what am I afraid of? What's actually mm. happening right now? I am afraid of what happened in the past and reminding myself that it's in the past. Um, and, you know, time passing, I think mm. sometimes someone asked me a couple of years ago, like, how are you okay? And I was like, because time has passed. <laughs> I was not okay um, for a while there, you know, after my first son died, after my second son died. But I even remember, you know, after my first son died, feeling like I could never try again. That right. I couldn't possibly, possibly face another loss and I didn't want to risk it. And then I had Ford and it happened again. I, you know, I, I don't know, if I've been able to pinpoint what it is, but it is time passing. It's been the resources that I've been blessed with of therapy, <laughs> of, you know, always but uh, there's practical things like being housed and fed and i've 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 always mm-hmm. had those things and i've been cared for and i've had you know a family with resources to to just pick me up literally pick me up when i've i've needed it and all of those things around me are what made it possible to be open to whatever might happen and knowing that might be another loss yeah because i've had those supports in place
0: that's important I mean, just as you said at the start of the conversation around, you know, um, I have a disability, but I'm disabled by the systems and structures around me that make it impossible for me to easily get down into the subway system because the lifts aren't working. Um, and you keep pulling us back to how the system influences our experience in the world and supports us around that.
1: And I think there's, you know, I, I go on about resilience sometimes, um, and i it's not to like downplay you know my spirit and my mm-hmm. my strength and you know my part in all this but at the same time i think there's too much emphasis uh when it comes to success and quote unquote failure on the individual um in so many different aspects of our our life and and the ways i talk about that with resilience i mean it, there's first of all, this idea that resilience, um, I quote my therapist in the book who said, resilience sucks. And what he yeah. meant was, is that you only f- discover you're resilient through suffering. So like, it sucks because if you're resilient, that means you've endured some kind of right. hardship. You right. know, your your resilience doesn't make itself known for no reason. <laughs> right. Um, and, but at the same time, if someone's not resilient, that idea, right, pull yourself together. What, what if someone can't on their own? Yeah. Like, that is not a failure and and if if someone needs more help than someone else like or you know or if, or if circumstances or their social location has meant they don't have that help it it i don't think it, that can be put on the individual and so i sometimes um you know push back on the idea of resilience cuz some people will really lift me up as some kind of superhero who's overcome all of these things and you know like the question how am i okay but yeah. it's all of these things around me it's not just my inner Flame and determination, right. you know, but it—it's all of these things that have some. I've not. I've been, been out of my control in the same ways as some of these hardships have been out of my control. The ways I've been carried through them are as well. And and you know, we—the the onus can't be on the individual. We need community care. We need each other. Yes. We need to take care of each other. Right, and. Right. You know, there's also this. I think as indigenous people, we sometimes are like, you know, indigenous community, you know, resilient people. And it's like, well, stop fucking shitting on them so they don't have to be. <laughs> right.
0: Exactly. <laughs> you know?
1: Like, it's exactly. sort of this excuse. And that's not to discredit resilience. You know, there's this kind of like.
0: No, it would be awesome if they could have just a bit of a break where they didn't have to be resilient and they could just carry on having a pleasant life.
1: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Not being extraordinary, you know. Um, so, so yeah. I don't know where I was going with that, but... <laughs> it, was a, it was a
0: perfect answer. Hey, Krista, tell us about the book that you've chosen to read for us.
1: Yes. I have chosen the book Brilliant Imperfection, Grappling with Cure by Eli Clare.
0: And how did that book come into your life?
1: I was reading uh, Kaylee Trace's memoir, which is called Hot, Wet and Shaking, How I Learned to Talk About Sex. In 2016. And she... Great um, title. Great title. She's a uh, queer disabled sex therapist and who I'd like found on Twitter. And it's a great memoir. But in it, she, in one kind of paragraph, mentioned uh, a number of like disability justice activists. And I hadn't heard of any of them when I read Kaylee's book. Mm -hmm. One of them was Eli Clare. And it just so happened that that year was the year his... uh, I now know long anticipated second book had come out. Kaylee and I went to his book launch in Toronto and I, I got the book. I spoke to him afterwards. Um, And it was my introduction into disability justice. I now have read others. Someone else could have been my first, you know, (laughs) uh, but, but he was that, that, that first uh, person. And it's thanks to Kaylee that I encountered this world of, of work.
0: Amazing. And I think I know what disability justice is, but can you explain, just frame what disability justice is?
1: Hmm. Disability justice, um, like other social justice, uh, movements or aspects is the centering of disability when it comes to human rights and, and equity and equal access Hmm. in part I am yeah. actually not an expert on that. <laughs> hey,
0: I'm, I'm not holding it to you, but you're a bridge between me, who doesn't know much about how to, to speak about it, and people like Eli, who probably are articulate champions around that work.
1: Yes, yes. Um,
0: and and which two pages did you choose from the book to read? Can you introduce those to us?
1: Yes, I can. It was a challenge to pick two pages. When I, when I thought about, I mean, I love this premise, That you know, two pages from like a meaningful book. And a lot of books come to mind. There are so many books where I would want to read you, you know, the, the two pages of the most beautiful language or the most exciting yeah. moment. Um, and with this book, it's like as a whole, this book changed my life and changed yeah. how I see myself in the world. And so it was a challenge to find, like, what are the two pages that reflect that or are a moment you know where I, I enjoyed the writing I mean it's 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 a book of disability studies but it's memoir it's history there's there's yeah. poems in it Eli's a poet um and so I I wanted to find a section that tied it all together <laughs> exactly <laughs> you, Can you know just
0: embody the entire impact of this entire book in two pages please it's hard right. to do <laughs> it's
1: a big ask what you're doing here. Yeah. Um, And so, but I, but so there was a few different sections that I, that I thought of, um, but I, but I settled on one.
0: Beautiful. So let me introduce you and then we'll get to hear these two pages that I am super keen to hear. So Krista Couture, a woman of many labels, but amongst other things, a musician and an author and author of a debut memoir, How to Lose Everything. And Krista's reading from Eli Clare's book, Brilliant Imperfection, grappling with Cure. Krista, over to you.
1: Thank you. And so you should know before I read these two pages, Eli um, has cerebral palsy and uses the term body-mind. I think it's in this this section a couple times. Um, kind of times, referring to this idea that our minds and our bodies are not two separate things. If we're talking about our health, you know, our body, our mind, like they're, they're kind of one, you know. So when we hear that word, you'll know what that means. <laughs> For many decades, we've been promised cures just around the corner. Consider the Muscular Dystrophy Association, MDA. The organization churns out fundraising ads enthusing about how close scientists are to finding a cure for muscular dystrophy. In one, a pretty white girl is photographed in black and white, her hands curled under her chin, big dark eyes staring into the distance, her wheelchair visible but downplayed. The tagline reads, in dreams she runs muscular dystrophy must be stopped, and it will be. In another more recent ad, they've switched to colour photography, dropped the child model, and revised the familiar don't walk signal to read, can't walk. The tagline declares, with enough hope and help, this light will change. The MDA just keeps on asking for money for cure. The premise that muscular dystrophy must be eradicated is always presented as an inarguable truth. But this seeming imperative is actually an arbitrary cultural value that arises from prioritizing walking over rolling, devaluing disability and disabled people, and fearing the possibilities of death that come with some, but not all forms of muscular dystrophy. Even if we accept the notion that the world will be a better place without this body-mind condition, the girl in the black and white MDA ad still has a life to live here and now, a life that will be made better by material and attitudinal access. The quest to eliminate muscular dystrophy is a commitment to the future, projecting values and priorities into the months, years, and decades to come. This agenda is reflected in cure research more generally, whether it's focused on preventing polio or ending the AIDS epidemic. Certainly these endeavors have saved many lives. AIDS, syphilis, and tuberculosis no longer predictably kill people, at least those who have access to the treatments or cures. At the same time, we mustn't ignore the ways in which research's future-focused commitment has served to devalue people in the present. For instance, treating wheelchair users with muscular dystrophy as tragic and vilifying HIV-positive pregnant women who might pass the virus on to their children. If the U.S. government and nonprofit organizations, private corporations, and university laboratories are going to dedicate money and time to the future, they also need to do so for the present. They need to fund accessible buses, schools, classrooms, movie theaters, restrooms, housing, and workplaces. They should support campaigns to end bullying, employment discrimination, social isolation, and the ongoing institutionalizing of disabled people with the same enthusiasm with which they implement CURE research. I want money for accessible playgrounds, tree houses, and sandboxes so that wheelchair-using kids aren't left twiddling their thumbs in the present while they dream of running in the future. If we choose to wait for the the always-just-around-the-corner cures, lavishing them with resources, energy, and media attention, we risk suspending our present-day lives. The belief in cure tethers us not only to what we remember of our embodied selves in the past, but also to what we hope for in the future. And when those hopes are predicated on cure technology not yet invented, our body minds easily become fantasies and projections. What do we need to make peace with our visceral selves today? to let go of the fantasies, even if we hope beyond hope that our flesh and bones, organs and neurons might be different someday down the line. I ask because I don't know the answers. When non-disabled folks ask me whether I'd take an imaginary cure pill for cerebral palsy, they're inviting me to engage in fantasy on so many levels. That technology doesn't exist, nor is it in the making, unlike the promised cures for breast cancer, diabetes, autism. The question is nothing but a thought experiment that underlines the devaluing of disability. I know what my answer is supposed to be. My questioners expect me to say, yes, of course, I'd take that pill in a heartbeat. And when I don't, they're puzzled and disbelieving. They wonder if I protest too much, or am I defending myself against the unpleasant truth of my misery? How can I possibly not want a cure? It's simple. Having shaky hands and shaky balance isn't as awful as they imagine, even when I slip, totter, descend stairs one slow step at a time. My relationship to gravity is ambivalent. On mountain trails, I yearn to fly downhill, feet touching ground, pushing off smooth and fluid. Instead, on steep stretches, I drop down onto my butt and slide along using both my hands and feet, for a moment becoming a four-legged animal. Only then do I see the swirl marks that glaciers left in the granite, tiny orange newts climbing among the tree roots, otherworldly fungi growing on rotten logs. My shaky balance gives me this intimacy with the mountain. I would lose so much if that imaginary cure pill actually existed. Its absence lets me be unequivocal. It opens the door to brilliant imperfection.
0: Uh, that's a wonderful passage and beautifully read as well, Krista. Thank you for that. That was that was really great. Um, there, there is something really powerful about that tension between this imagined future and projecting everything onto that imagined future, and how you accost you the present. Um, I'm Krista. I'm what struck a chord for you in particular about that section?
1: I had never thought to question that kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. that to question a a drive for something better, you know, quote unquote, better, 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 Um, I I didn't know the inherent ableism in it. And now I see it kind of all over the place that 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 passage and that idea opened my eyes to looking at some of these things differently. And, and where it ends, you know, with Eli finding this, you know, describing the way he experiences a mountain on all fours and that there's something so kind of sensual about it and what he sees there that maybe other people don't get to see was also one of the first times that I thought about disability, my disability as something exciting, (laughs) you know, (laughs) That the, there's everything around us, everywhere tells us that there's yeah. you know basically one kind of body that is the right body. It's a non-disabled yeah. white cis, probably male body, right? Yep. Um, most of us are not that thing, and I mean you know, or all of those things. And for you know my 30 years in this disabled body, I didn't encounter really until I read this book that maybe this is good enough my body is good enough <laughs> and not mm-hmm. only that it's 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 wonderful as wonderful and as valuable and will have strengths and insights you know that are unique um as yeah. as does everyone else
0: what what shifted for you when you started that, when you had that moment of acceptance or at least beginning that moment of acceptance around this is something to get excited about not something to manage around
1: Everything changed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Short answer. I mean, yeah. this is um, this book and reading this book. It, it came at the same time in my life that I made my prosthetic leg very visible. I I wear a prosthesis that's covered in flowers. It, it looks hand painted. It's mean, it beautiful. Yeah, it's it my favorite accessory. It goes with everything. <laughs> it totally um, does. So it's this beautiful prosthetic leg, and for many years I kept uh, my prosthesis hidden and tried to pass for being two legged. Wanted to pass, um, and it wasn't so much that it was a secret that I only had one leg, but I, I, I did try to keep it um, private, you know, from employers, right. from from audiences as a performer, because of the r- real worry that I would be discriminated against or you know, that people would fixate on this this part of my being. And so when I got the flower leg, um, that started to change how I talked about my disability, how people interacted with me about it. And I read this book around the same time. And so there was kind of a few, you know, ideas bubbling up and and aligning for me. And it changed... it it changed how I stand in a room, you know, it it changed the clothes I choose and how I want to look or be seen and what I want to draw attention to. Um, I, you know, in in challenging my thinking about disability, I started to feel much more empowered um, in who I am, in the experiences I've had, and in making that shift of like, oh, this isn't a problem with me. <laughs> there right. are all these problems around me. It's not my fault. <laughs> I am right. not, you know, the broken one here. There's all these other broken ideas and, and, and elevators. <laughs> um, and, and so it, it changed. It, it just changed how I feel, honestly, yeah. in, a, in a daily way. Um, and, and it changed the conversations I have.
0: I mean, I think this is a bit different, but I think there's a connection here. Because um, I've had a similar moment with having a cleft lip and palate. Now, you know, a cleft lip and palate, you're born as a kid with an opening in the top of your palate, the top of your mouth, um, and on your lip as well. Now, you get sewn up when you're really young, you're know, less than one or at the most two. So you don't remember any of that. But what I do remember is a moment where I realized, you know, having a cleft lip and palate, this may not be a bug, it might be a feature.
1: Hmm.
0: Because what I do in part, some of my time anyway, is I speak on stages. And having a cleft lip and a palate and and a speech disability that's connected to that makes me different. But in some ways, it also makes me more accessible to people because I don't, you know, I'm not super polished, I'm not flawless. I've got that slight point of difference and people can perhaps build a bridge there. Right. You know, there are other speakers that I've certainly seen where I'm like, you know what, you are so polished that I can't actually really fully connect with you. You're somehow slightly less than human. (laughs) I'm messy and I'm human. I mean, there may be a different form of connection that happens through that. Because you're right, I think you can go, this isn't a disadvantage. It's actually an advantage. Perhaps it does shift everything.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, similar to what you were just saying, I had this experience a few years ago where I uh, made my maternity photos from my uh, pregnancy with my daughter. I wrote an article for CBC Parents um, about disability and representation. And I thought I was publishing those photos for other people with disabilities who were you know, pregnant or thinking about pregnancy and because there was very little out there. Like when I did a Google image search, (laughs) there was not a lot out there. And I thought, okay, my, at least now my pictures will be one of the things available. But those photos went viral Mm. and all this attention happened, you know, in a span of a week or something, but this moment of these viral photos and all of this attention and all of these people responding to them. And what I realized is, is that everyone is impacted By that homogenous depiction, right? Right. Everyone kind of consciously, if if they're someone who is marginalized or, you know, is not well represented, definitely feels it explicitly. But even people who are people want to see difference. They want to see their family and their friends and their community represented because most people feel kind of left out of that that narrow depiction and so like you're saying with you know being a best speaker and being more you know accessible it's the word like the double meaning but like it, it, i realized in with these photos being viral it's like oh everyone wants that everyone wants to see nice. different bodies shown um you know as beautiful as strong on a stage with a microphone like we need to be lifting up all these differences because i think most people even if they don't realize it are kind of starved for it
0: that's that's interesting. Is there a connection here to shame in some way? I'm I'm wondering if there's a moment of being able to be ashamed and then move beyond shame in terms of part of this acceptance.
1: Hmm. Yes. <laughs> I I definitely felt shame about the way that I walked, my gait. Um, the way that clothes fit over my prosthesis, um, the way that I look without my prosthetic leg. I mean, my prosthetic leg, you know, especially now it's so visible and it looks really cool and in part robot and all that, but it, it, <laughs> it, you know, it looks like a leg, you know, it's a leg shape. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think cause of like Hollywood movies, people kind of have a sense of like robot legs or what they would do. Um, Without my prosthesis, I mean, it was one thing with the viral photos. It's the first photos I've done um, where I took it off. And I definitely encountered and had to challenge my feelings of shame around my stump, like around my amputated yeah. limb. Because, you know, gosh, who said it? Someone will find the quote. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you don't see it, you can't be it. and And there's so much else that gets taught with that message you know when we don't see ourselves represented it's not just like oh maybe I can't be a speaker or a supermodel but it's it's actually like oh maybe there's also something wrong with you <laughs> it's kind yeah. of that the, the secondary message in that right um, and so to Embrace my flower leg to make, you know, not just a visible disability, but point a neon sign to it, um, to take it off in photos, um, to to decorate it and kind of celebrate it was yeah. absolutely to challenge and walk through shame and face all of those, you know, supposed ideals of what a body should look like and dress like and move like, Um, and, and that stuff hurts, right? Shame hurts. <laughs> yeah. It's, I feel like shame and betrayal are like the two, can I swear, we've already have fucking worse <laughs> <Swear>. feelings, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, right. you know, and, and so it's hard work to, to face shame. But I think, absolutely, when we're doing work of self acceptance, whatever that is about us, about our stories, um, who yeah. we are, um, that's a hard piece. Um, but I think it's, I think it's always present.
0: And I do just want to appreciate the work you do in that, bringing some of the stuff into the light and just saying, this is it, and I'm okay. You know, as your book title says, I had to lose everything. And it's like, I've lost so much, and I'm still okay. Now, I don't know if you've left shame behind entirely, Krista. I know I I find it hard to do that with some of my stuff, but it is much diminished. And perhaps that's the best way to frame it. You know, what a gift that is. Hmm. Krista, the question I love to ask at the end of a conversation like this, and it's been such a great conversation, is a final question. It's a big, tricky question, so you can wrestle with it as you will. What needs to be said in this conversation between you and me that hasn't yet been said?
1: We've covered a lot of ground. Yeah. <laughs> When it comes to, you know, the work I do and and Eli's book and the passage I shared and, you know, I've been kind of going off on tangents in different directions. But well, the thing that matters to me um, the most is offering <laughs> the suggestion, the idea that things can be different instead of better And if I haven't clearly said that so far in this interview, it's that that is my shtick, that is my message at this moment in my life, that I I want there to be space for difference instead of a pursuit of better.
0: I aspire to be brave enough to be willing to go for the great things, the hard things and risk loss. You know, the heart of my next book actually is the idea that we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. But stepping out to the edge, to the place where the risk is, that's so hard. Because, you know, we get dented by life. You know, there's a saying, once bitten, twice shy. But I don't think you'd call Krista shy. You'd call her, well, we're getting into labels again, and Honestly, it's probably more interesting to remember what she calls herself, right? So maybe the, the last line of the passage that she read, you know, remember Eli walking on his hands and knees and how it opens up that new world, opens, here's a quote, the door to brilliant imperfection. I wish us all, me included, the courage to find and open that door. You'll want to find out more about Krista, I'm sure. You can find that at her website, Krista Couture, or one word. So let me spell it for you. C-H-R-I-S-T-A-C-O-U-T-U-R-E. And uh, you'll find her on Facebook and Twitter, but she's most active on Instagram. So that's at Krista Couture. And you are fabulous for listening to this podcast thank you i really appreciate it if you want a little bit more maybe you'll choose to join us in the duke humphreys it's the free membership associated with this podcast um duke humphreys is this great old library in oxford it's where they used to keep the oldest best most precious books um in my duke humphreys i don't have 14th century manuscripts but i do have transcripts and unreleased videos and and downloads and other giveaways it's totally free and i'd love you to join us there if you're so interested you'll find it at mbs.works on the podcast tab there and if you're up for it would you pass the word along if you know people who wrestle with labels or who are champions for labels or who champion activists mean, krista is such a force in this world or people who are creators anybody you think you know they would love this episode please pass it along to them we grow listener by listener. And um, I don't aspire necessarily to have a bazillion listeners, but I'd love some really great listeners. And my bet is you're a great listener. and My bet is you know somebody else who would be an amazing listener and part of this conversation. If you're so moved to give us a review on your podcast app, I know it You hear every podcast host kind of begging somewhat for that, but it does make a difference. It helps people feel assured that this is a podcast worth listening to. And if you think it is, then that little piece of work from you can help me immensely. I'll just finish by saying you're awesome and you're doing great.